0: I think, you know, a lot of freelancing or a lot of being a writer in any capacity is, you know, developing a slightly thicker skin, but I'm not going to lie, anytime I get a rejection it hurts. I have to mope about it for the best part of the day. But exactly, it's learning, it's not taking it personally. But the other part of that as well is and the phrasing that I always tell myself is that don't don't censor yourself. If you haven't sent the idea, you don't know how the editor is going to respond. You have no clue. Maybe they'll accept it within 10 minutes. Let them be the gatekeeper because that is their job and their role. But don't censor yourself because you think something might happen. You have no idea what's going to happen. It could be your big break into the publication that you've always wanted, but you don't know. Oh, this sounds so cliche. You don't know unless you try, but it's true. Don't censor yourself.
1: Welcome to the Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer, entrepreneur, community builder, and a firm believer that every one of us can go after the stories we've always wanted to tell with the right support, encouragement, and structure. I'm on a mission to help women storytellers everywhere break into and thrive in the travel media space. If you're ready to ditch your fears to the side, grow your knowledge and confidence, and publish your travel stories, you're in the right place let's go welcome back everyone to the travel media lab podcast if you're listening this live somewhere in mid-october i am on my way from austria to jordan and sending you lots of love and sunshine from the sunny jordanian capital amman I hope you enjoyed the first part of our mini-series, Editor Insights, that we released last week, in which we spoke to editors Ashley Halpern, Nikki Vargas, and Ashley Halligan. If you haven't, do definitely check that one out as well. Uh, There are lots of wisdom moments packed into that episode. Today, I'm sharing with you part two of this mini-series, and this episode is a must-listen for anyone who dreams seeing their name on the pages of travel magazines. That's how much insight and practical information is packed into this episode. We're talking to Sarah Han, an accomplished travel journalist for the New York Times, Travel and Leisure, Bon Appetit and more, whose most recent role was Conde Traveler's Middle East Editor-in-Chief. And we're also talking to Lauren Keith, a freelance travel writer, editor, and guidebook author whose work has been published in Lonely Planet, Smithsonian Magazine, Atlas Obscura, Afar, and more. Lauren also worked as Lonely Planet's editor for the Middle East and North Africa. In today's conversation, we really go so deep on topics like how Sarah finds story ideas and the difference between being a freelancer and editor Advice on breaking into this industry and what editors really want from freelancers. We also talk about ways you can start developing your network of editors, what is the most misunderstood part of being a freelancer and a travel journalist, what the editors look for in a pitch, and why Lauren tries to give everyone a chance. Listen on to find out what writing has to do with the work of a coal miner and why we shouldn't censor ourselves. And remember, if anything that you'll hear today resonates particularly well, be sure to go and check out full episodes with each of these editors where they go even deeper into their path to where they are today. All right, let's get started on this episode. How do you, in general, find your story ideas? Because I think for both you and I, for, for people who travel for work, right, most of the time, we always we always want to make sure that we have story, multiple stories out of every single trip that we take. Mm-hmm. So your story ideas, do they, do they happen naturally to you? Or is there more like a process that you follow before a trip where you're like, okay, I want to write, you know, I want to have five stories about Malta or whatever that is?
2: Uh, I think it varies. so I, I obviously just started this role recently, so now my my mandate is very different. But when I was a freelancer, I had a bit more flexibility because I had you know the world was my oyster as far as which types of publications I could place certain ideas in. And so I just in that role was able to just sort of let my curiosity guide me, like, what am I interested in? What do I want to know about? So for instance, I was always curious, um, and a lot of it relates to the news and what's happening in the world. and so, There was a point where we were hearing a lot of stories about Islamophobia and things like that in in Europe. And that just made me really curious about Bosnia because Bosnia is a Muslim country where like there are indigenous Muslims who've been there for hundreds of years, but it's part of Europe in the heart of Europe. And um, so I was just like, well, you know, we keep hearing about like Muslims are not from here, but what's it like in a country where Muslims are from there and have historically been from there? And I think that was kind of what I did a lot of just as a freelancer. I was like, what am I interested in? What am I curious about? What do I want to know about? And then after that, you know, like the the next step would be in who would be interested in this story. In that case, the New York Times was interested in that story. Um, now, obviously, my mandate is a little different because I am the editor in chief of Coney Traveler Middle East, which obviously services this part of the world, the Middle East, the GCC and, you know, broader environments around here. And so and then the diaspora as well. So that's why now I try to obviously there's a mix of like newsy things that are relevant, things happening in the region. But I also, where possible, try to look at the world through a lens that might be of interest to this part of the world where it should broadly be interesting. I would think anyone who's interested in Europe would be fascinated by some of the um, unexpected cultural exchanges that happened in Malta. But it's, you know, it's an Arab legacy in Europe that you don't really think about that much that, um, you know, where it's the only Semitic language in the European Union. And that it's, you know, if you speak Arabic and you speak a Romance language, you actually will understand a lot of Maltese. Um, So I think that's where now I sort of try to think of like more my readership first and what would be a service to them and then kind of go from there. So it's kind of an interesting shift in how I approach my storytelling now.
1: Yeah, for sure. And actually related to that, I was curious. So, you know, like we mentioned you recently became an editor in chief. Again, congratulations by the way. It's an incredible achievement. And before that, you were a freelancer for I believe 8 years or so. So, how do you think your your time as a freelancer in travel media has prepared you for this next stage in your in your career?
2: Um, well, I think it's just helped me really get a lot of different insight into how different publications work and what works and what doesn't and what I like about editors and what I don't like about editors and kind of try to be the best editor I can Uh Unfortunately, it's still a work in progress because I'm still very overwhelmed by a lot of it. So I can't say I'm as responsive to emails as I'm hoping to become based on my own experience on the other side of the, the computer.
1: Oh my god, I love that because that's such a big gripe for us, right? I know.
2: Trust me, I was leading the charge of talking about it, and I hate that. Like, I have not been as on top of my inbox as I want to, but I'm trying. Um, I think the other thing that's been an interesting shift for me that I'm like, you know, diversity and travel writing has been a very important passion of mine. But I am one human who has one particular lens on the world. So what's exciting for me now is as an editor. I can actually champion that vision and like, you know, really try my best to bring in a broader range of writers. You know, while before I just sort of was able to, and it was great. I loved every minute of being a freelancer, well, except for the parts where editors weren't replying to my emails, but you know, like there was a lot I loved about freelancing. But I was also one of the things that was kind of cool about it is I just got to write the stories that I wanted to write at the end of the day. Obviously, it's not as simple and, and romanticized as a bit. But you know, you get to kind of focus on things you want to do. Whereas here, I get to find ideas that excite me that I'm curious about, and then try to think of who the right writer might be for that or like, you know, or just finding voices that I like and just sending cold emails like, hey, I like that story you did, and, you know, inviting them to pitch. Um, so I think that's something, you know, as a writer, I saw this void and this need of like, you know, a broader range of voices. And and there's only so much I could do. And so many people I could recommend, I wasn't empowered to actually make changes. And so I feel like that's something I'm hoping to do a lot more of when I'm on this side of it, because of a need I saw as a freelancer.
1: Oh, I love that so much, Sarah, because it's been sort of my experience too. that. And, and, you know, I'm I'm curious to, to hear your take on it, that the travel media industry in general is such an insular, space that you know if you if you're not already part of that or somehow connected or plugged in if you don't know the right people if you're not in that space then it's so hard for many of us to break into it um and i know you and and your co-founders have started travel is better in color which is an amazing platform that features all the different voices in the industry but i'm curious what would you say to someone who is sort of looking from the outside looking into that and they have aspirations but then also they're like i don't know anybody in this industry what do i do you know yeah well i think
2: first you know obviously it's it's been very problematic for a long time but i also try to have a bit of empathy for the editors where Yes, it's been a big blind spot, they shouldn't that that should not be okay. And it's, it's I'm glad that people are waking up to it. But also, they it's easy for anyone to fall into a comfort zone, right? Like when you work with one or two writers, you know, they're good and reliable, as opposed to going out of your way to seek out new voices. And, and you don't know what you're going to get necessarily. We're all doing multiple jobs now, you know, in publishing. So, you know, I can see why it's easy to kind of fall into that familiar zone of writers and that little, you know, limited pool and network that you've grown over time. So I think and but yes, at the same time, it's incredibly intimidating if you're an outsider. So I think now is probably a better time than most for writers looking to break in who might consider themselves outsiders or not have the right network or the right context, because I think editors have been waking up to their blind spots and realizing that they really do need to do better. And that's part of where something like travel is better in color comes in where we have been. um, And you know, I mean, it's we all have full time other jobs. So there's only so much we can do. But it was sort of our way of showing other editors and a lot of you know, top editors do follow that platform. And showing them there are really talented, diverse writers, photographers, publicists, and people broadly in the travel industry who've been doing their thing and are very accomplished and very well known and doing it in English language mediums around or English language publications around the world for a long time. So just sort of making it a little bit more accessible where here are a bunch. Just go to our Instagram. You'll see little bios. You'll get to know who's where, what they're doing, who they've written for. So obviously that's for people who are somewhat more established because they've been published in places where just sort of highlighting some of their work. Um, But I think even so I think, you know, and editors are very receptive to like discovering new writers. So it's kind of like a good way of making it easier for them in a bit and making their job easy for people who are newer and like on the earlier end of the spectrum. I think editors are also just more open to hearing ideas from different people that are new than they might have been five, 10 years ago. But especially with COVID and all the travel restrictions that are constantly changing, this is a really good time for uh, writers who are based in different countries and regions that aren't New York or London around the world that are able to potentially, you know, like places that say previously in the glory days of travel writing, an editor might have just helicoptered in their favorite writer to go to, you know, Johannesburg and do something. Now, with all the, you know, unfortunate changing restrictions, they're more likely to commission somebody already based in Johannesburg, which is probably in many cases, the best person to tell that story. So I think if you are somebody who's either starting out or doesn't have contacts in, you know, some of the top publications, but you're based in an unusual destination for them, not to say there's anything unusual or exotic about the destination, because, you know, travelers, we hate the word exotic and, and what that implies but more just like if it's a place that's not easily accessible to or commonly on the radar of a travel editor and sitting in New York, um, this is probably your best chance to actually get their attention.
1: I love that. I, I I really love that, Sarah. And just to point this out to our listeners, first of all, Kadiha Farah, who we had on the podcast several times now, she's a Kenya-based photojournalist. Yeah, yeah I've seen her. I You've seen her, yeah. She, she talked about that too, that, you know, in the pandemic, she, she's gotten so much more work than she ever did before, exactly for that reason that you just mentioned. But I want to, I want to point out to our listeners what Sarah just said is that editors are open to new ideas, new voices and. A lot of times I see that women who are starting out in this industry have so many doubts about, you know, whether they have something legitimate to say when they're first pitching somebody. And so I just wanted to reinforce this idea that editors are actually open. To new ideas and new voices, and you know, if you if you're watching this as a video later on um, on YouTube, Sarah is you know an incredibly approachable and accessible and amazing human. She's not scary. She doesn't bite. So they are like that, you know. Uh, they're humans just like us.
2: And we just all are just all we really want is a good story. And if you have a good story, tell it. And and I mean, obviously, that simplifies it a lot. There's a lot more that goes into it. But I think the other important thing is if you are new or you're, you know, just getting the courage to pitch somebody, cold pitch somebody you haven't worked with before and you don't hear back or you don't get an immediate yes, is you cannot take it personally. It is not a testament to you or your talent or your lack thereof or anything. It is literally, it could be as simple as you just Zanzibar story and they just did a 10 page feature on Zanzibar. So they're not going to revisit it. And then maybe they just didn't get a chance to reply to your email. Because again, email inboxes are always a nightmare. Um, So I think that's the other thing you just you have to have a bit of a thick skin, especially if you're a freelancer, and you just can't sell yourself short and tell yourself that, oh, this person didn't reply, my career is over, I have no, you know, I must, I must be terrible. And I say this as somebody who did that throughout my freelance career, even when I was getting the best bylines of my life, like there's a lot of self doubt that goes into this. Even when I was interviewing for this role, I was just kind of like, what am I doing? And I'm just like, wait, I've, I've earned this, but for whatever reason. I think a lot of us get intimidated and, and talk ourselves out of things. So when it comes to pitching new editors, you should always go out there. All it takes is one great pitch to catch someone's eye. And if it doesn't pitch it somewhere else, somebody will be interested.
1: Oh, I love that, Sarah. I love that. that's exactly what I talk about all the time on this podcast. Exactly that. right? don't don't interpret all the rejections or lack of responses as a personal judgment on you, your work, your worth, worth of your work, any of that, just you have to grow really thick skin in this career. Yeah.
2: And I mean, I'll say that as you know, as somebody that I think was when I was freelancing, I think I was considered fairly prolific and and rather successful as far as freelancing goes. And I'm very proud of the career I had. But I had so many people that wouldn't reply or, you know, editors i have worked with many times and had good relationships with and it's just, You always, the instinct is to take it personally. I often took it personally, but like literally happens to everyone. Like even the people you're seeing that are being published everywhere you want to be published, even people who are starting out, like it's just. Just the way it is. It's not great. And that's why I said my goal is to be a more responsive editor, even if I am turning someone down, which again, still a work in progress. But yeah, I think it's just you need to know that it's not you and you should always try somewhere else until because you don't know what the the secret formula is for some of these magazines and publications and what really they're looking for at any given time. So,
1: yes. And, And actually, on that point, I think one of the hopeful signs that I see in the industry. When it comes to opening up those insulated uh, spaces, is that I was shocked to see this year how many publications, for the first time ever, put their pitching guidelines online. Where you know before it was like you you had no idea what Afar was looking for. For example, if, unless you had a foot in the door already, Condé Nast uh, U.S. as well just recently put their up, and it's like wow, that's great. You know now you sort of have the guidelines.
2: used to feel like getting an editor's email address was a state secret. Like you had to learn all these like complicated ways to Google things and find it. And now they're literally like, here are the pitches. Here's the right editor for that section. I mean, it's amazing. It's, there's a, it's a whole new world right now, I think. And for, for people who are trying to get their foot in the door, that wasn't Mm -hmm. even possible a few years ago. Whenever anybody asks me for advice for freelance travel writing, I actually say, if you have the ability, the privilege, the chance, the opportunity to move overseas to somewhere like less covered by US and UK publications, do it because that was actually a huge turning point for me professionally. Like I obviously had been working as a journalist for a few years, i would worked in travel magazines, I built some, you know, a bit of a portfolio and all that, but I was still fairly like junior to mid level at that point. Um, but moving to South Africa and going freelance, I gave myself a year to see how it would go. And then if I needed to, I'd look for something more full time. But within a year, I was writing for all my dream publications. And that was because. I mean, and I know in some ways I had a leg up because I'd worked in New York media before, but honestly, most of my pitches that landed in that first year were through cold pitching, where I just reached out to a new editor who'd never heard of me and be like, hi, I'm I'm based in Cape Town. I have XYZ ideas. And so, kind of like what I was saying earlier, where like if you're somewhere unique and like not that often covered by these editors, there you have a leg up already, you know? And so, I living in Cape Town had the ability to really tap into nuanced story ideas that were happening on the ground there. And I started by focusing on Cape Town, then kind of Southern Africa. And then when I had the relationships with the editors, I'd be like, all right, well, I want to go to Estonia or like, you know, like I just kind of pitch all over the world. Um, so I think it was a great foot in the door for me, like kind of establishing myself with my regional expertise and then building those relationships and taking them beyond. So even when I moved back from South Africa, I wasn't just the South Africa girl. I actually had a blog back then called the South African. Get it? Yes. Yeah. So so yeah. So like, I, but I was kind of worried when I moved back to New York. Like, what if I'm just a South African? Can I actually transition this? But I think that's when I I built those relationships with those initial pitches, and then I just kind of transitioned to other coverage. So long story short, if you have the opportunity to live somewhere unique, and again, I say that just in reference to what editors might be looking for or have access to, um, because it's obviously much more expensive for them to send a writer to Cape Town than it is to have somebody who's got on the ground intel and. My intel as someone based in Cape Town was obviously much better than someone sitting in New York Googling frantically before their trip, right? So so yeah, for me, that was honestly, I feel like that experience really helped me leapfrog ahead a lot as a freelancer so that I really kind of, if I was in New York and fighting for the same stories as all the other freelance writers in New York, I don't think I would have had anywhere near as much success as I did in that stage of my career.
1: What kinds of stories does Sarah Khan, editor-in-chief of Canada's Traveler Middle East, uh, looks for? Wow, oh,
2: that is a great question. I'm still every day trying to figure that out um, because there's so much to tell. It's such a dynamic part of the world and we only have a bi-monthly magazine to tell it. So I feel like it's been... It's felt a little bit limiting in that sense, where I feel like, oh my god, I want to commission everyone, everything. But I think the things that stand out to me are just really strong local coverage of this region. So you know, stuff that's and we know the Dubai really well because we're based in the Dubai and in the UAE. But I want to hear more from Oman. I want to hear more from Jordan. I want to hear more from Egypt. Um, Tunisia. So I just really thoughtful, nuanced stories like the kinds of stories I like to write as a freelancer. I want to empower other people to write for me from you know this entire region and just you know like focusing on the arts and the design and like you know just entrepreneurship and like you know there's so much happening. It's such a dynamic, really exciting time to be in this part of the world, and I really want to showcase that as best as I can. And then I'm also trying to shape our international coverage where. I really take into account what stories might be of interest to readers who are, you know, Middle Eastern or diaspora backgrounds or what like what would be of service to them. So I want to that's part of why I did the Malta story, because. I think that's broadly an interesting angle and I hope other people like it too. But I think like I, I was saying earlier, like that's something that is a legacy of this part of the world over there. And I think that's, so I want to do a bit more of that kind of, not like that every story needs to have that angle, but I'd love to kind of look through the world through that, like filtering the rest of the world through that lens as well, where those stories are relevant, because there are some really interesting, you know, legacies around the world that I think would be really fun to spotlight, but there's also just generally travel stories and trends. So send me everything guys. <laughs>
1: Sarah right, is open to pitches, you guys. So there you go. There are two things that sort of stood out for me when you were talking just now. One is, it's actually a great idea when you're approaching a new editor that you want to you wanna pitch with something. Look at their work. If, if it's available online, look at the kinds of stories they've created in the past. And that's a great indication of you know what kind of stories they like to see as well. And the other thing was that I feel that excitement that you're talking about in the region as well. Like the past several years that I've been coming to Jordan, that's what I keep seeing. There's so much creative energy here, and you know, particularly in Amman. And it's so exciting that. And, and I feel like a lot of audiences outside of the region have no idea, or you know, they have a very different idea of what some of these cities in the Middle Middle East look like. And that's partially why we're here right we're partially here to change some of those narratives as well so that's that's really exciting
2: and i think that is honestly one of the main things that drew me to this opportunity is just this part of the world has been so misunderstood and underserved for so long, that, like, yes, I want to tell stories that first and foremost are in service to this readership. But I also want to show these different nuanced sides of this part of the world. And this is a massive part of the world. It's everywhere from, you know, the GCC to North um, to the Levant to North Africa. And, um, you know, to be able to tell these stories in a global way that other people will also kind of see some of the change and the, the interesting things coming out of here.
1: Definitely. So how do you, I guess the question then is, how do you develop that network of editors? So you said, you know, you, you didn't really know that many editors, you knew a lot of writers, but not necessarily editors. How do you get to know them? Like, where do you go? Or, you know, how do you develop that?
0: It's, it's a tough one. It takes a lot of time. Um, there are several ways. Being introduced by a fellow writer contact is always really good if there's uh, a project that um, someone kind of passes on to you because they think you know, they don't have time or think you'd be better suited. And then just doing your absolute best work and showing the, the editor what you're capable of. Networking events, when those exist, I know they like really went away during the pandemic, obviously. Um, but there used to be quite a few of those in London. Um, so either you know meeting with tourism boards or just kind of happy hour drinks, that kind of thing. But most of it is from other writer contacts and other friends who are doing you know freelancing in the same way that I am. And once you're kind of, and sometimes it's even been editors passing on my information to other editors. So it really depends. But I I hate the word networking so much with like it just <laughs> as an introvert and I don't know, shy person, like nothing terrifies me more than going into a room full of strangers and being like, Hi, I'm Lauren, I'm doing this. I'm like, Oh, man, that's just my worst nightmare. But it does it leads to good things. It leads to connections. And it's it's worth doing. It is it really is. And
1: you are reinforcing what I also believe and what I've come to know as the truth in in this industry, but in many other industries as well, is that at the end of the day, connections really matter. Who you know really matters. You know, I, I stepped into this industry quite naively. I didn't know anyone. And I was like, I don't need to know anyone. My work can speak for itself. And I wish that was really true. But at the end of the day, it's not to say that, you know, editors will only work with who they know, or is that, you know, that there is some sort of favoritism, although sometimes that can also happen, that editors get comfortable with working with the same writers again and again. But I think it's more just naturally human nature that we like to put the face to the name. We, we are more comfortable reaching out to someone with work or with opportunities, somebody who we know, right? Somebody who, who has a connection. So I think it's important and let this be a warning sign to anyone else who's listening today that don't be like me. Don't think that you can sort of just do it on your own. You do need people. You do need connections. You do need to start reaching out and making those connections. And I also hate networking. I find it to be oftentimes, I'm not used to it. You know, I, can't, I come from a culture where it's not really a thing that you do. And so I always felt like, well, I don't want to boast about myself. I don't want to like sell myself. So how do I make it naturally? You know how? But I think it's, if it's more about your curiosity, your passion for travel and you're there connecting with other people who are just as passionate about travel and storytelling and that curiosity, then I think it can be a nicer experience, I guess, you know?
0: Exactly. It's an intimidating situation to start. But actually, the conversation is actually really easy. You know, people are there because they can talk about travel for hours and you do. (laughs) And that's what, you know, even if nothing else comes out of it, except chatting about all of the previous trips you've taken, then yeah, you'd be surprised what comes out of that, actually. Definitely.
1: So I'm wondering, you know, you have this amazing body of work. You've been, obviously, you've been working at Lonely Planet, but also been published there. And, you know, Smithsonian Magazine, which we will link to, Atlas Obscura, Afar, many other magazines as well. What would you say is the most misunderstood part of being a trouble writer? And on top of that, being a freelancer?
0: That's such a good question. I battle this all the time talking to people who are not in this industry. The first part we've kind of touched on a little bit where people think that it's like, this is vacation. And I'm like, and it uh, and that's the, like, again, I'm not complaining about it. But it, it's work. It's it's very hard. It's time consuming. It drains your energy. It's in a beautiful, wonderful way. But it is something that you still have to go away and recharge from. The other part about being a travel writer is that you kind of feel like you have to make a story out of everything that you're doing. And I struggle with that sometimes. Every single place you go. So I, we were talking before I was just visiting a friend in New Mexico. And it's like... Oh, what story is this? What should I, you know, taking my, I drove there. So should I go through certain towns on this road trip down there? Should I do this? Should I do this? And it's like, no, just let it be. You don't have to write about absolutely everything. And sometimes it can feel like, like you're always working, like you, it's not possible to switch off. And again, like, it's such a privilege to say something like that, uh, which I appreciate. But, you know, this is this is the industry and this is what it's like. Uh, Freelancing is a very curious one. I find that a lot of people still don't know fully what that means. I'm not my parents basically don't think I have a job or that I do any work, which I guess is true in a way. I mean, I but I am my own business. I am my own company. I have too much work. I've had way too much work for at least six months now. Um, But you know, they just see me sitting at their kitchen table staring at a computer. And they're just like, why aren't you doing something today? Or I'm like, Oh, I'm going to a coffee shop. And I'm like, I'm doing work there. (laughs) I'm not just going to sit there. Um, But yeah, I don't think freelancing is really understood that well. And people kind of assume you're just not working, even though, I mean, you know, across so many industries, all it is, a lot of it is looking at a computer screen. And yet when I, but you do it at the office, you know, so that counts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you're doing that at home, then it's not a job. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. But I think that's the battle is like convincing people. They're like, oh, what are you working on now? What are you doing? And like, no matter how many times I explain it, it's just, no, it doesn't seem to, uh, to make a dent.
1: God, I can relate to that so well. And and what you said about not being able to turn off and always looking for stories. Yeah, I feel that pressure all the time, you know. I haven't had a trip where I just went just to explore and just to be a traveler in in such a long time. And and even the last trip I did, which was like that, I was like, "No, I have to make a story out of it. I have to I have to be efficient. I have to produce all these stories, you know?" And I think it's actually a really important conversation to have that we need to have those moments where we just don't work and we're not there for a story. We're there for our own enjoyment because then how do you replenish that well of creativity if you're not taking that time? You know, I found that to be true for myself. When I'm traveling all the time where I'm traveling on assignments and and doing all these things. After a while, I'm so burnt out. No new ideas are coming to me. It becomes so hard to be writing those stories. And I just feel like I need that time to replenish myself. Uh, So it's so important not to get into that hole, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I kind of I after this Egypt project, slightly different, but it was just such a big project. I was in Egypt for six weeks, and then probably back and writing nonstop for six weeks, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, because like those were the deadlines. And I had to, you know, it was a book that hasn't been published since 2009. So it was a little bit like writing it from scratch. And I've, I've struggled with the work life balance part of it, for sure. Um, you know, having a salary job, I think, or an in house job made that a little bit easier. So it's always, you know, something to remind myself of as well. And something that you kind of you get so far down that line, like you were saying that you're like, you know, get burnt out, or, you know, I it's time to recharge. And it's just about learning yourself and um, knowing when that point is coming and uh, ideally being able to see it a little bit further in advance instead of arriving and being like, Oh, no, this is it. I am done. I am so burnt out. But it takes it takes time. And it takes learning yourself and what your limits are and what you can handle.
1: Yeah. and, And I think the other really practical consideration of that is that when we're not working, we're not earning, right? So that's the pressure that you and you know, I I'm really bad at this, especially lately. You know, so many projects that are that I'm working on that I haven't taken weekends off in a while. in, In several months, at least, I've been working through the weekends and. Literally yesterday, I was like, Yuli, I think you need to take this afternoon off because yeah, you're, you're reaching that point where you're going to be burned out pretty quickly, you know, but that's the, I think that's the rub really as a freelancer, as someone who works for yourself and you don't have that salary is that we have this pressure that if we're not working, we're not earning, you know, so figuring, but then on the flip side, figuring out where, well, what can you do? So that when you're not working, you're still earning, you know, that's a whole other conversation We'll touch on it in the podcast and the upcoming episodes as well. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's such an interesting one with freelancing, you know, the saying is always that it's feast or famine, there's always too much work or not enough slash zero work. And I've been lucky enough for these last few months that it's been a feast. But then that makes it that is, you know, it's still, it's still hard on that side of things, because it's like, okay, I don't know when these jobs will end, they could end tomorrow, and then that's it. So I'm going to spend as much time as I can working on them right now. And then if they're like, okay, this project is done in two weeks, then it's like, okay, I've gotten as much experience and uh, money out of this as I could. And that's it. And on to finding new things. But then it's like, Ah, well, this hasn't ended yet. And, you know, then other stuff is coming in. And it's just it's all, a you know, it's all in the balance, and it will work itself out. But it's definitely something you have to actively manage and figure out for yourself what works. But I still I love that aspect of it so much. I still love the editing side of things. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. So it's, you know, I have so much love and appreciation for people who make it as full time freelance writers, because that is not me and not something I could ever do. And I because I just I love I love the the background side of it more the editing, the reading, um, the project management side of it. And sometimes I'll get these big ideas that I'm like, Oh, I, I really want to write this. And I want to make this happen. So I do. But the process of writing actually gives me a lot of anxiety. And I don't and it always just it feels like I don't know, kind of pulling my heart out and and putting it down on a page, which I know is so dramatic. And, you know, some of the stuff I write is like, you know, just top 10 lists and things like that. But I'm like, but, you know, who knows, maybe this is gonna win the Pulitzer Prize. No, I don't. I don't think it is. But like, that's, you know, I always want to put as much of myself in something as I can. So it's a very, writing for me is a very emotional and energy intensive process, and I can't do it very often. Um, and I just haven't been trained in that way. So that's why I um, prefer, and not even prefer exactly, but glad to have, uh, you know, that the vast majority of my work and my time is actually spent editing instead of writing.
1: I love that you're putting that fine point on this because, you know, we, we, we talk with a lot of writers and photographers on the podcast, and we have we have had interviews with editors as well. But I just really love going deeper into this distinction between the skills uh, required for an editing uh, profession versus a writing one. And by the way most writers I speak to, myself included, we feel the same way. That is like pulling your heart out uh, onto a page. It's really personal, right? Regardless of what you're writing, you know, my process, and I've shared this on the podcast before, but my process is the, the very first draft, it's really hard to put it on a page for me. It's so hard. Like the words are coming out so hard. So what I've learned to do is I've learned to sort of life hack my or hack my way into it with this process where I wake up really early at like 4am, 5am, which is way, you know, earlier than usual. And before even having coffee or brushing my teeth, I sit down in front of a laptop, I put a song on, on repeat, the same song on repeat. And I just put everything I know about the story on the page. And it takes me about an hour. And it's like, Everything is, you know, comes out because at that point, your brain is not completely awake yet. So you're sort of in entering this flow state. And then, you know, later on afternoon, I'm more sharp, whatever. That's when I'm editing and I can edit three, four, five, ten 10 times sometimes and painstakingly about every single word that's there and you read it and reread it. Like you said, there's so much care that goes into these words and sentences that are, you know, the top 10 beaches or whatever project. So, you know, what I'm saying is, don't worry, we're all I think we're all feeling the same way about this, this process,
0: you know, I would actually love I don't know, some, I don't know, a podcast series that you could do next is what people's writing process is, because that is Utterly fascinating. I, you know, just to hear that you like before you do it, you know, before you get up and do anything to get your day started, you sit down and write. I love that so much. My process is <laughs> that it's not even a process. Um, something that should take me one day to write. So I don't know. I call that about a thousand words because I don't think I have more than that in me per day. But so I'm like, okay, it'll take me a day to write a thousand words. But I need a, the day before to like freak out about it. So I, you know, I sit there and like complain to myself and I'm like, I don't know why I signed up to do this. And then it kind of, you know, it's almost like the stages of grief in a way where it's like you're angry at yourself for doing it. And then it's kind of, I don't, I can't remember all of them, you know, like the resignation and then the imposter syndrome sets in and this isn't my story to tell and why am I the one doing this? And at the end of the day, all I hope to produce out of that amount of time is an outline of the story in an ideal world. Like the introduction would be there But at least like the bullet point outlines, maybe a few notes, like what you were saying, like just get down absolutely everything you can, even if it's not in complete sentences or the, you know, phrasing that you end up using, at least all of the ideas are out of your head and onto the paper. But yeah, and and I, some writers I've talked to, you know, they can't, the introduction is always the hardest part, right? Because it's what has to hook the reader immediately and, you know, has to be your probably best written paragraph of the entire thing. And some writers say like, "Oh, I, you know, skip the introduction to start and then, you know, write the rest of it and then come back to that at the very end." And I'm like, "I can't. I can't do that. The introduction like it tells me where the piece is going, even though like you know that you have the general outline in your head, but I just don't feel like I can flow and move on until that introduction is written. So that will take me hours and hours, and then once that's done, the rest of it will come a little bit more naturally, but I envy the people who can just, you know, ask ah, skip that move on, and then come back to it later.
1: Oh, my God, I love I love hearing your process. And by the way, I think f- for me, the opening paragraph, and also the closing sentence, the last sentence of the piece is like, you seal the deal with it. And I loved your your closing sentence in the Hegra story. So again, there's this is an invitation for everyone listening to check out this, this beautiful story that Lauren uh, wrote that we're referencing throughout today. But something you said about your process, two things stood out to me. One is imposter syndrome. Wow, guys, listen to this. Lauren Keith, who is this established writer and editor, she's been published in all these places. She's worked in, in all these places. She goes through imposter syndrome too, just like do all of us. And we talk about imposter syndrome so much also in our membership and in this podcast. It's something that all of us deal with. And how how amazing, honestly, it's amazing for me to hear that you deal with this too, because then it's, it really tells me that, okay, it's, it's not a real thing, right? It's not the voice that tells me, it's not my story to tell. Who am I? What am I doing? Why did I say yes to this? It's not a real voice because that voice is not just mine. That voice shows up in every head that's trying to do something amazing, right? And how beautiful it is to realize that.
0: Exactly, and it's so true. And um, you know, I I haven't come to a full strategy as to what really works to kind of even make that voice a little bit quieter sometimes. But I really like the you know when I start to ask myself those questions of you know why are you doing this? Why are you you know why are you the person? Who are you? you're writing about Saudi Arabia, and you're from Kansas, like you're from nowhere, who are you? But it's just like, you know, this is my passion. And this is what this is a story that hasn't been told yet. And, you know, we all as writers have our own different types of audiences. And so if I'm, you know, if only 50 people read this story, then maybe I've convinced one person out of those 50 to travel to Saudi Arabia or to learn about the Nabataeans or to awaken something in them that they're more interested in. And I think that's what it all boils down to at the end of the day is that like, this is my passion. And this is what I get to do. And I there's nothing wrong with me telling this story. And I'm sure you've had it as well. It's it can be challenging in certain places in the world in the Middle East. And there are story ideas that I've had or heard of and have backed away from because I'm just like, I don't I love this story idea. I just don't think it's my story to tell I would love to. But I think an Arab journalist or an Arab woman journalist should be the one telling that instead of me.
1: Yeah. And this is such a fine balance to walk or like fine line to walk, that, that, that nuance of knowing where it is your story and it's really just your imposter syndrome telling you it's not and where it's really not your story to tell, right? There is nuance in that. And, and I think that also with experience, you get better at figuring out which of the two you're looking at here, right? Uh, but I agree. I, I go through that process all the time too. Like, is this my story? Or not, but I love how you brought it back to your passion, right? You're writing about something you're passionate about, and and the way I put it always is, what gives you the mandate to do this job? Well, this is the answer. This is one of the answers. It's my passion about the Nabateans. It's my passion about archaeology or history. It's the story that hasn't been told yet, right? So I just really love that uh, insight, and for our listeners also to to take note of that. That when you are struggling, and when you're, you know, when you're hearing those voices again try to bring it back to that question, right? This is my passion that I'm writing about. So that's why it's so important to always bring it back to that. Oh, actually, and, and the last thing that I just wanted to tease out from what, what you said is that the importance of knowing yourself and your process. So if you know that you have a story of thousand words that's mm-hmm. due next Friday, you know that you need two days. One of them will be the freak out day and the outline day and the other one will be the day to write. And how important is to know that, to have that knowledge because now you can manage that, right? And hopefully that also helps us be a little bit more easeful next time we're writing another story because now you know, this is my process. This is what I go through. So I I always say that it's really important that you know how it is that your process works because then you can manage it and you can prepare for that and, and hopefully plan for that better.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it takes time to know that it's not just something that you realize, I don't, you know, and only when those deadlines stack up, or you, you know, you spend, I spend too long in the freak out process, instead of the actual writing process. But it's something you, you know, as you were saying, like, you get to know yourself over time. And it's like, okay, you know, we've done this before. It's a, it's a mental, it's a mental preparation exercise, to some extent. But it's not something that even... I don't think unveils itself clearly and obviously, even the first few times you do it, it it takes time. And you have to even if like I know that day of freaking out and negative self-talk and imposter imposter syndrome is stupid. I know it's stupid. And yet it has to happen every single time. And you just have to learn to give yourself that grace and that time and say This is just, this is part of the whole thing. And there will be a finished, beautiful piece at the end of it. And this is what it takes to get there. That's okay.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I love that so much. In this career, in your path, you've had to look at a lot of pitches, I imagine, because you were a commissioning editor at Lonely Planet. And even as I understand it, you know, with your freelancing projects now, you're commissioning pitches and stories too. And I know this is a very broad question, because it will depend on, you know, what exactly you're looking for, what kind of projects, but in broad terms, what do you look for in a pitch?
0: Uh, first and foremost, that they've that the person has followed the instructions that I set out in the call for pitches. Um, so if I've asked for two clips, or uh, a whole, whole portfolio, or, you know, an introduction to, the, you know, a little bit about themselves and their experience in this place, you'd be really shocked at how many people don't actually follow those basic instructions. So I used to be very nice and kind of wrote back and said, ah, this isn't quite what I was looking for, try again. And now I've gotten a little bit more cutthroat after years of doing this, just like, nah, straight to the trash, <laughs> not not dealing with this.
1: Hey, Sorry, can we pause here for a second? Because this is really important, you guys, What we just heard from Lauren. And I talk about this all the time, too. If your pitch doesn't quickly get to the point of what it needs to do. It's going to go to the trash. And and this is just the reality. And not because Lauren is some sort of a bad person, but because Lauren has a lot of things to do. She has a lot on her plate and she she gets so many pitches come in, I imagine, on a regular basis. And so I talk about this all the time too. Look at the guidelines, like the pitching guidelines. Look at the instructions and the call for pitches. It's really important to follow that. And I agree with you, many people don't. So that's really important. <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. And the, the shorter the pitch, the better. And some editors might disagree with that. And obviously, it will depend on the publication as well. But if you can't sum up the idea for your story in a couple of sentences, then you're probably not quite there yet with what the story needs to be. So as long, you know, I wouldn't say a specific word count exactly, but maybe 150 or 200 words If you've met all of the things that the editor has asked for in their call for pitches and been able to sum up your story in a few sentences, that should do it. You don't need to go into super elaborate details. You might not even need to call out the specific things or places that you're going to highlight within the story, but just say here here is my idea. And then if the editor does want more information, and they're intrigued by those few sentences, then they'll ask for more. And that's fine. And you can provide it at that point. But yeah, do field a lot of pitches. It's I as an editor, I I try to give everyone a chance. If they, you know, if someone doesn't have big name publications behind them, I'm at. That is absolutely fine. I know what it was like to start with nothing. To you know, just be writing on a blog or for friends, or you know, oh, I have clips from my high school or college newspaper about something that's completely irrelevant to what I'm you know writing about now. That's okay. Um, I think it's. It's just your style and your personality and attitude actually play a really big part in it. If someone is difficult, if a writer is difficult to work with, but they're an excellent writer, I don't care. I don't want to work with them. It's much easier to work with someone who maybe isn't as strong of a writer, but who is willing to learn and willing to take edits and feedback and go through that process. But yeah, I wish more editors would do that to just, you know, to give people a chance. On the other hand, I have been burned a million times over through various, you know, just many, many, many rounds of edits, or even writers who have written for bigger publications and have some, you know, strong clips behind them, you realize that there's actually a lot of editing that went into that. And maybe the original submission wasn't quite as strong. So it's it's a again, it's another skill that you learn over time and through fielding and working with pitches and writers, and you learn to look out for certain things. But yeah, I, I do my best to give a lot of people a chance to get them that foot in the door because everyone needs that.
1: Oh, I love that. I am so glad that you said that, Lauren. And I hope everyone listening now paid attention to that as well, because, you know, it, it's funny how like you, you're sort of reinforcing all the points that I always talk about as well. And one of them is, you know, a lot of because in the Travel Media Lab community, In the membership, but also in a broader community, a lot of people are interested, but a lot of people are not pitching, are not reaching out because they're like, well, I don't have any clips, I don't have any portfolio. But it's kind of a catch-22. You need to start pitching to start building the portfolio, right? And how do you do that? What I always say to them is that if you do your homework... If you go through the guidelines and in the instructions, if you follow that, and by the way, a lot of publications are now putting their instructions up online. So it's much easier than when I was starting six years ago, that wasn't happening. But if you do that and you have a great idea that fits with this publication or with this call for pitches, a- an editor worth their salt, and that's my really like, my, my big conviction, that an editor worth their salt is not going to turn somebody away because they don't have a big name publication in their portfolio, if the idea is great and if it fits. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely.
0: Clips are like, it's like an added bonus, but not the end all be all. If the idea is solid, that's what matters. That's the result at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what you've done for other publications. This is its own contained article. This is, you know, this is its own small project. So while it matters what you have done previously and who else you've worked with, it's not, yeah, it's it's not 100% of the deal.
1: Yeah, it, it's given me goosebumps. I love that. That's really wonderful. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad that we we talked about this because this is really a big barrier for a lot of people. And unless you start pitching again, it's that catch twenty two. You're not going to be able to progress, you know. Because how do we get better? We get better by doing the work. My original pitches, my original, you know, from my first couple of years in this path, I look at them now and I'm like, oh, I wrote that. You know, you improve through doing the work, and so it's so important that you start doing that.
0: Absolutely, one of my favorite things that I've ever read, and I'm going to misquote it or not quote it exactly correct, but it was something that uh, Cheryl Strayed wrote. She was the author of Wild and a few other books, but she wrote something. You know, she, well, she has the write like a motherfucker, and like that just always sticks with me. But there was a part in those series of articles, and this kind of ties back into imposter syndrome as well, where you know she talks about practicing writing, and it's like. It's like doing sets and repetitions. It's a muscle that you exercise. And then she compares writing as a job, as a career to being a coal miner. And she says something like, do you think the coal miner goes into the mine and just stands there and is like, oh, I don't know. What am I doing here? It's like, no, the the miner just digs. You start digging and you get there. And I think like just repeating that to myself in my head is like you just you dig you start going the only way to get to the end is to start I love that
1: oh my god I love that that is awesome yeah we are we are like miners in some cases that's true and we and we dig and sometimes the inspiration you know it's interesting it listen we, we could probably have a whole conversation on like you said the writing process and the intricacies of that because it's interesting how this works sometimes it is that you know hard it's like pulling teeth it's like you're digging through this mess to get to the other side but sometimes I do feel like I almost like enter some sort of highway and words just flow out of me like they are just been giving to me from somewhere and they just come out it's so interesting how sometimes that happens too you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that—that's the ideal to reach. And maybe you have to do a little bit of digging to get there, and then it comes. And it's—it's it's different for every piece. I find some are like being on that highway, and some are like standing in the cave, and you never quite know which, you know, how it's going to go. But it's—it's it's always a process.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um. So, well, then to close on that loop, then what would you say to someone who is, you know, maybe interested? writing or like pitching Lonely Planet or pitching Afar or pitching any of these other publications and doesn't have this big portfolio to start with? What would you like if if there's one thing you could tell them, what would you tell them?
0: Go out in the world, read, write. Um, These are the things that it takes to be a writer is to know other people's work, to see what's happening around you, to be curious about what's happening around you. But it, it takes time and You know, just because uh, an editor doesn't respond to you or that your pitch gets rejected, that doesn't mean that the idea is bad at all. It just means that it's not a fit for that publication. And I think all of us, no, no matter how long we've been writers or in this industry at all, have, you know, at least a handful or maybe even like a bank of ideas that it's like, well, I just... I don't have the right home for this yet, or it's been rejected from five places, and I don't know where to put it yet. And all of that stuff will find a home. Maybe that home ends up being your blog or, you know, a self published book or something like that, that doesn't make it lesser at all. It just, you know, every every idea, if you're passionate enough about it, will find a home. And because that's the story that you want to tell, you should tell it. Oh, I love
1: that. I love that so much, Lauren. That is so beautiful. And, and I'm actually surprised that we haven't even touched on rejection up until now because such a big part of this process, right? Like getting rejections. And, and that's another thing that really stops a lot of people because they're not only they are worrying about the portfolio that they don't have, but they're also worrying about getting a rejection. And I always also say that it's such a normal part of this process and there is nothing to be afraid of because all it means is that At this time, for this particular editor for this particular publication, this idea is not a fit. But the problem is that we often internalize it as, oh, you're no good, or your ideas are no good, you
0: know? Absolutely. And I like I think, you know, a lot of freelancing or a lot of being a writer in any capacity is, you know, developing a slightly thicker skin. But I'm not gonna lie, anytime I get a rejection, it hurts. I have to mope about it for the best part of the day but exactly it's learning it's not taking it personally but the other part of that as well is and the phrasing that i always tell myself is that don't don't censor yourself if you haven't sent the idea you don't know how the editor is going to respond you have no clue maybe they'll accept it within 10 minutes let them be the gatekeeper because that is their job and their role but don't censor yourself because you think something might happen you have no idea what's going to happen It could be your big break into the publication that you've always wanted, but you don't know. Oh, this sounds so cliche. You don't know unless you try, but it's true. Don't censor yourself.
1: It's so true. It, it is so true. And oh my God, you, you've you already given us so many amazing wisdoms today. I love it. Don't censor yourself, guys. I think I might take that one on and keep repeating that one because it's so, because we do, right? That's like all these barriers that we have in our own head about what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. So we stop short of actually doing something. And that's the most important thing we could do. Oh my God, I love this. Thank you so, so much for listening to our show today. I hope you enjoyed the second part of our Editor Insights mini-series, and if so, I want to ask you to please take less than a minute right now to support our show. You can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcast app, or by sharing this episode on social media, or maybe with another person who would benefit from it. It really helps us get discovered by more listeners just like you that would find our show helpful and it means so much to me. I read every single review we get and I take them very seriously because I want to create a great show for everyone. So if you've been inspired by something you heard today or in any other episode of our show, please take literally less than a minute to support it by leaving us your rating or review. That is one of the best ways you can help us out. And if anything that you heard today resonated particularly well, be sure to go and check out full episodes with each of these editors where they go even deeper into their path to where they are today. You can find the links to those episodes in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.